Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Thursday, and we're so glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool awaits, and we actually have a normal format today. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives, and we have a special champagne toast at the very end of our conversation today. And Jim, the good martini sadly comes with a, a dark lining in terms of the conduct we've seen in the last 24 hours. But with the story of George Floyd, which we talked about yesterday in one of our bad martinis, there seems to be nearly universal assessment of what happened here and that it was wrong. I mean, a lot of times in these police-involved shootings, there's a great debate about what happened. You go to Michael Brown and Ferguson and, and some of these other situations that we've talked about over the years, and a, a debate rises up about whether the, the police officer was justified in the conduct. I have heard literally no one justifying the conduct of the officer in this case who had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. And we're also finding out today that the officer involved, who's been on the force since 2001, had a dozen police conduct complaints, but was never apparently disciplined. Uh, and so from right, left, and middle, you've got everyone out there now saying that you can see clearly on the video that what he did was wrong. It was obvious that uh, Floyd was in distress. People were pointing it out. Nobody did anything about it. And now we've even got uh, body cam footage and other video from uh, before he was taken to the ground where it doesn't appear he was resisting arrest or, or much of any other sort of confrontation here. So, Jim, I'm not sure what was going on in the mind of this officer, but everybody is uh, pretty much on board that this was reprehensible and there need to be serious consequences here. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the narrative got a bit muddled last night because a bunch of people in Minneapolis decided to set an auto zone on fire, loot a target and do other destructive things. And that might uh, lead to a more divisive uh, conversation about this. But uh, the fact that everyone pretty much is in agreement on this is unique and it's good. Yeah, we, we've seen a lot of cases of allegations of police brutality that turn into the victim or alleged victim's account and the cop's account. And uh, sometimes there's either a cell phone footage from somebody standing by. Uh, I mean, going back all the way to Rodney King in, in 1992. Or you have the you know, body cam footage was supposed to resolve a lot of these cases. And in some cases they have, in some cases they have not. There's, you know, uh, civil libertarians have pointed out the sheer number of times the body cam footage tends to malfunction at the most important time, which is a deeply troubling trend you do not want to see. Um, but in this case, the, you know, there's really not a lot of people who could say, oh, this was a split second decision that the officer had to make in a tense crisis situation or no this you know you would think that after the Gardner case up in new york that you'd see uh much more uh, reticence to use uh pressure against the windpipe to to detain someone uh the guy was down on the ground the idea of you know pressing your knee down on it you know what it's almost a question of what did you expect was going to happen when you put that much pressure on a man's neck and you are correct and you know for look you know, public officials it looked like there was a, this was a rare case in which there really wasn't two sides to the story or a fear that the cops were being railroaded. You know, this, we could all see what was happening and this looked like, you know, charges were on the way. And then the rioting started last night. Now, as I posted in the corner earlier today, Greg, there are interestingly two groups of people who are really going to want to conflate public anger about the police's actions with the rioting. 
The first are going to be people who I'm going to you know, go out on a limb and say are generally on the left who want to excuse the rioting. They have decided that in their version of events, uh, angry African-Americans are always in the right and that every action taken in that circumstance is uh, uh, ultimately justifiable. Uh, maybe there'll be a pro forma tisk tisk, uh, and that they cannot really give a full-throated denunciation of the rioters. Now look, there is no excuse for setting somebody's business on fire. There is no excuse for stealing. No, it's not, a, you can't say, I am so angry about this police injustice that I've decided to get a new flat screen TV out of this. Um, there were apparently reports of looting at pharmacies. People running out with prescription medication. Well, somebody out there needs that prescription medication. That could be life-saving uh, uh, medicine for somebody out there that you just took because you were, you know, saw an opportunity there. So no, I don't think I can be justified at all. Now, the flip side of that will be, I think there were some people who will look at this rioting and then say, ah, see, well, what do you expect? You know, this is what the African-American community in Minneapolis is. Uh, you know, of course they need tough policing and all that kind of stuff. And somehow try to use this either to excuse the actions of this officer or to kind of downplay the seriousness of the actions that triggered all of this uh, controversy and outrage. And I did look it up, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, Greg. Um, the Philando Castile was in a, a suburb of St. Paul. St. Paul and Minneapolis are close to each other. That's why they're called the Twin Cities. They're not quite as close as I thought they were when I went out to visit in, uh, the, for the Republican convention back in 2008. Uh, and there was that other case of a police shooting in, uh, also in the Minneapolis Police Department. There was another police shooting in 2016 of a young black man um, that ended up in, uh, with, with no charges filed. So this is now a series of, I think it was like 2015, I want to say. So you now have a series of events that all kind of point in the same direction that I think, you know, maybe this is an issue in every police force across the country. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think it's indisputable this is a case in, in this area as police officers. And I hear that nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. I think that's true. I want to believe that's true. But this is the time for good cops to come out and speak out about this. This is the time for good cops to come out and you know, demonstrate that example. And also, we kind of count on police off, good police officers to hold other police officers accountable. And if there is this concept of the, you know, of the, the not the thin blue line, there's the idea that cops don't uh, never report other cops. The idea that cops never... Uh, whatever, you know, that somehow you're breaking a code by calling out another cop for bad behavior. Um, look, that's, that, that's probably the most toxic mentality you could have because the ultimate upshot of that is that everything a cop does is ultimately justifiable, even murder. I think blue wall is probably what you're referring to. That's there. thank you, yeah. But uh, it's, it's been interesting watching the, the footage last night. I mean, how'd you like to be a, a good cop in Minneapolis, St. Paul, watching uh, these folks justifiably upset about uh, how George Floyd lost his life and you didn't do anything wrong, but now uh, you're watching uh, folks uh, loot and, and, and burn and, and possibly worried about your own safety there. And so, uh, yeah, not uh, allowing the bad cops to, to skate is, is kind of important in that situation. So we have two populations who both believe they're being unfairly suspected of being uh, malevolent. All right, Jim, let's uh, move to our bad martini now, but this also uh, deals with a lot of mistrust. Let's go back to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. We talked in uh, recent days about how a lot of folks have died in nursing homes in New York State because of the governors and the state orders that nursing homes and long-term care facilities did not have the option. They had to accept residents coming back in from uh, coronavirus hospitalizations and new patients from coronavirus hospitalizations. Uh, yesterday, though, at the National Press Club, Andrew Cuomo had the gall to say 
it was the nursing home's fault for accepting these people in the first place. The obligation is on the nursing home to say, I can't take a COVID positive person. I'm too crowded. I'm too busy. I don't have enough PPE. Whatever the answer is, doesn't even matter. It's if they say I can't take the person, they can't take the person. So that's that's how it works. And Jim, I know it's been scrubbed from the governor's website what this order actually was now that it's been uh, rescinded. But it said no resident shall be denied readmission or admission to the nursing homes solely based on a confirmed or suspected diagnosis of COVID-19. Nursing homes are prohibited from requiring a hospitalized resident who is determined medically stable to be tested for COVID-19 prior to admission or readmission. Now, I'm not a lawyer, Jim, but that doesn't sound like you're giving a lot of latitude to the nursing homes. You know, Greg, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the line from Animal House, you messed up, you trusted us. One of the aspects that I think has kind of been interesting, you, you've seen a little bit of a rattle in the engine of the narrative of, you know, heroic Andrew Cuomo, uh, the, the, the savior of New York, who's so good, um, but not nearly as much as there really ought to be. Um, and then in fact, this decision about New York City's uh, nursing homes, or sorry, New York State's nursing homes, may be this, one of the most consequential decisions in terms of the number of deaths we have seen. Um, I mean, it's no, not, it's not that New York is the majority of these cases, but they have a, a significant uh, portion of them were there. Similar rule in effect in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, var variations of this rule, um, either encouraging or, or, you know, other things kind of nudging the return of these patients into nursing homes, uh, happened in California, happened in Michigan. Uh, and the, one of the great ironies, and I think one of the, you know, uh, if one of the, Ron DeSantis and the state government of Florida was very reluctant on this, that they, they seemed to recognize the danger that was going on here. Now, all of this was driven in part by this belief of, okay, we want to make sure these people are out of the hospital as quickly as possible. Uh, we're worried about hospital overcrowding. We're running about, worried about running out of beds, running out of ICUs. Let's get them out of there as quickly as we can. I think most people would recognize now. Putting them back into the nursing homes was a terrible idea, but that's, that's where we are. Um, I, I kind of come up with this interesting theory. You don't, Greg, you're not seeing nearly as much media coverage saying, boy, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is just doing a swell job with this, uh, this pandemic in New York City. It's interesting to see that for all of the uh, liberal bias or, or you know, skewing to one side and uh, benefit of the doubt that the media, particularly national media, usually gives to Democrats, that there was never an enormous amount of love for Bill de Blasio. I think his presidential campaign was seen as a clown show, uh, even by folks who were inclined to agree with him on the issues. Uh, he has just an extraordinarily unlikable personality. There's arguments that he's lazy. He certainly does not seem to want, have any interest in leading by example. So there's kind of this mentality in both the New York media and probably the national media, well, you can't argue that de Blasio is doing a good job. Well, this has to be a story of good Democrats and bad Republicans. That's just the way that the media sees the world. Everything that happens is meant to give us further evidence that Democrats are the good and wise people who trust science. I'm not imitating that old music video. I'm just using the all caps that are in Gavin Newsom's messages. Um, and that Republicans are ignorant and you know, superstitious and uh, reckless and, and all that kind of stuff. And they just kind of decided early on, you know, and Cuomo's, you know, persona in the briefings were certainly fine. And maybe that's all it takes. Maybe it's simply a matter of, you know, how, how do you speak in your briefings that creates people's perception of whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. 
Um, and like I said, you've seen a little bit of fluttering here, but this, this is absolutely shameless. And I think it's an indicator. You can see shamelessness on both sides of the, of the aisle. When a Republican says something blatant and shameless, they can hope the media is going to go along with it, but only if they're idiots, right? And they kind of know the media exists for a purpose to take them down. And if you go out and you say something that is a ludicrous rewriting of history, you're going to get called out for it pretty quickly. If you're Andrew Cuomo, you may not get called out for it quickly. You are not going to see, you know, three hours of prime time on CNN uh, talking about what a terrible job you did and how ridiculous it is you're claiming this. You certainly aren't going to see it on Chris Cuomo's program, now are you? By the way, I saw the Atlantic uh, wrote a piece that talked about how unethical it was for CNN to pretty much have a, a near exclusive relationship with Andrew Cuomo and to never ask him about this. Um, Greg, isn't it great they fired Kevin Williamson so they'd never have, you know, because you know, Kevin Williamson's been writing this like, like two and a half months ago. <laughs> right. Good job, guys. Could have been ahead of the curve on that one. And uh, Jim, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are at least occasional watchers of Fox News and You'll know that uh, their top weather person there is Janice Dean, the weather machine, as Shep Smith used to call her. Uh, she lost both of her in-laws to COVID-19 at separate long-term care facilities. So this has been a passionate issue for her that she's been following. Do you know how hard it is to make Janice Dean mad? It's every day now where Governor Cuomo is doing something to just raise the rage level in Janice Dean to a level that I don't think anyone in public has ever seen before. It's just amazing. There's been this mentality, I think, amongst a lot of government officials. Like, remember what, you know, Garrett, I think I'm going to take you way back. The summer of the sharks, 2001, before 9-11, Gary Condit decided to brazen it out. Uh, he went into a bunker and he just kind of figured that if he just didn't interact with the press for a long time, people would forget about Chandra Levy, uh, the allegations of an affair. And of course, she had been found dead. She was not murdered by Gary Condit. I believe another convict confessed uh, to her murder. But there was a long time... Um, you know, that this, you know, there was kind of this mentality of, okay, if you're, if you're, if your hands caught in the cookie jar and you're in a bad spot, just hide and wait for the storm to pass. And I think that, you know, it worked for some politicians, not for others. I think Bill Clinton, the Lewinsky scandal is probably the, the textbook example of that one. But there's been this new attitude of, you know, some would argue gaslighting, right? This idea of insist, not only is my hand not in the cookie jar, your hand was in the cookie jar and if there are crumbs all over you. And I was in fact trying to stop you from getting the hand, you know, from getting those cookies, you know, this, um, and I think it's safe to, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, more acidic to, to civic, uh, to our civic values. It is more damaging to us to see people insisting, no, I did not do X and to count on, you know, frothing at the mouth partisan supporters to kick up enough dust and enough con controversy over this that, uh, that, you know, that, that it turns into a big gray blur and nobody can distinguish about what actually happened. The president does this plenty of times. Really, in this case, Andrew Cuomo and the New York state government made nursing homes take patients back when they were still contagious and this policy killed people. Period, I was what I would say if I were Joe Biden. Yeah. No, Come on, exactly. man, period. Exactly, exactly right. And of course, uh, a lot of people are noting, and uh, it's understandable, the um, 100,000 death milestone here. And based on what, what your data you're looking at, it's anywhere from the high 30% to low to mid 40% of deaths come from nursing homes. So we're talking, you know, anywhere from about 38 to 43,000 deaths coming in nursing homes. And it's not just New York that had this policy. New Jersey had it. I believe Pennsylvania had it. Michigan might even still have it. The only difference is Gretchen Whitmer won't release nursing home death data. So she's just building herself a really solid case as a, as a great leader in this. Uh, hey, you know, maybe our old friend Tim Alberta could write another glowing profile. <laughs>
<laughs> I liked him a lot. I just thought that was a that was not a great piece. Oh man! Well, he's probably trying to get ahead of the curve since she was uh, getting a lot of speculation at the time. Probably not anymore. But but, who, but 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 who knows? Who knows what Joe's thinking these days? Uh, according to the latest rumors, it's Kamala Harris due to his uh, racial gaffe from late. They get last along week. so well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that little girl was me. <laughs> Can you imagine her trying to make her case on every issue they disagree with by ending with that? Let me tell you about a little girl who thinks tax rates should be even higher. <laughs> that little girl was me. All right, let's uh, move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, we rag on the media a lot, and they deserve it a lot with their bias, with their uh, sins of omission and commission and spin and all sorts of things. But that doesn't mean there aren't good, solid, reliable, honorable members of the mainstream media. And as a result of downsizing at CBS, one in particular is apparently out of a job, and, and I think two as well. Uh, one is Pentagon correspondent Cammie McCormick, who actually lost part of a leg in Afghanistan. She's been with CBS a long time, fought all the way back to be uh, again stationed at the Pentagon. The other is Mark Knoller. If you ever watch the White House briefings, even without the uh, salons being shut down, he usually has a pretty thick mop of hair. He's got a beard and uh, he's been around a long time. And he's kind of like the unofficial White House press score historian. He keeps track of how many times the president goes here and there and a lot of other details. And he's not a guy who gets involved with a lot of partisan spin. He just reports what happens at the briefing and uh, gives you some historical context a lot of the time. It's a great resource. It's a, he's a great follow on Twitter. I'm sure someone will pick him up soon. But CBS has apparently laid him off laid Cammie McCormick off, and uh, overall they said it's a single-digit percentage of the network's news division. A lot of folks now wondering whether some of the higher-ups, the highest-paid people, could have taken a pay cut like apparently Katie Couric did uh, during the financial crisis to save some jobs. Don't know what's happened there, but uh, it, it's very disappointing and, and frankly stupid that two people who are well-respected and well-seasoned got the, the ax here when it seems like it's not a huge percentage of cuts. Yeah, I mean, first of all, as I, as I said on Twitter a short while ago, if you're if you're cutting if you're firing Mark Noller to save money, you're not trimming the fat; you're scooping out bone marrow. Um, that is like a, a good measure of a correspondent is how much do you feel like you learn something from this correspondent? And Mark Noller, you look at his Twitter feed, you look at his you know anything he puts together for CBS News, you know you're always learning new things. His historical perspective is great, but you know he just gives you here's what happened. He doesn't he's you know. He's one of those guys who has turned into a quasi star by not trying to be a star. Whereas I think the White House press corps is full of people who want to be stars and who are very much trying to be stars every other conceivable day. Um, Yashar Ali, who uh, writes for New York Magazine and HuffPost contributor, by no means a, you know, a person on the right, but you know, a very interesting kind of thought provoking guy, uh, points out that you know, CBS News is laying off people and asks what the uh, uh, the executives are are saying, um, you know, the network president, you know, she, she, um, you know, there and also there are a considerable amount. For those of you wondering about salaries in journal in journalism, you're thinking of your, you know, maybe you have a college age nephew or niece or child is thinking of going into it. Don't do it. <laughs> Greg and I don't need the competition. No, um, the real, you know, it 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 is very much feast or famine. Um, I don't know about you, Greg. I feel like I'm doing okay at National Review. But by and large, in particular for a long stretch of time, journalism majors had the lowest starting salary of just about every uh, major that was out there. And I mean, that you know, sociology majors were making more money fresh out of college. Like, you know, um, 
you know, journalism, American journalism, particularly at newspapers, particularly in print, but even in, in radio and TV, you were generally making crap wages on the bottom, uh, being a gopher, starting out, running around, scrambling around. And then you could slowly, you know, uh, climb up there. And once you were um, a couple of years in the industry, you'd probably make a, you know, respectable lifestyle, maybe not, you know, uh, but you know, hopefully a middle class in most places, maybe not that. But television news, holy smokes, television news was almost like Hollywood salaries. It was, you know, you have a million a year, two million a year for the big news anchors. Producers making high six figures. If you were one of, you know, one of the movers and shakers in 60 Minutes, you were making serious money. Now, you were a big name at that point. You were, you know, arguably at the top of the profession. So it's understandable and reasonable. Um, I don't know the precise figures of the on-air talent, of the, of the anchors of the, you know, the big shows in, in, for CBS News. Three to $12 million a year is not an unreasonable figure. That's kind of Yashir Ali's uh, estimate there. Um, you, you don't see, I don't think anybody in any newspaper is making a million dollars a year. I could be wrong. I got I to gotta go. I don't think anybody, I, I can tell you nobody at National Review is making a million a year. I can tell you nobody at National Review is making close to a million dollars a year. But what Ali asks is, you know, what are the multimillionaires that these networks doing to save the jobs of their colleagues? And if you're making 12 million a year, can you get by on 10 million just for this year to try to save 20 jobs of your colleagues, 20 families that don't have to go through and struggle? It's a pretty fair question. And I think it's a uh, one that probably needs to be asked, particularly since when we get glimpses of these folks' viewpoints on political issues, they're all about equality and, you know, oh, America needs to raise the minimum wage. No, no, no. You know, look, th these are the people who make the Bernie Sanders arguments feel resonant and feel important and feel like a serious solution to us. And the great irony, of course, of course is that, you know, the, all these folks are on the left and think of themselves as good progressives. They just believe that they're entitled to make an unbelievable amount of money, even when their colleagues are being laid off. No, absolutely right. And I'm wondering if that's the deal here. If somebody over at CBS has decided, oh, well, Trevor, just out of J school, he could do this job for 20000 a year. Mark Noller's been around a long time. He's gotten a lot of raises over the years, and uh, we save a lot of money. Uh, the quality of the journalism is not going to be nearly the same, but who cares? Yeah, I, I, you know, you see this on a lot of uh, web-based institute, you know, places when you know, they hit trouble, they cut or they get rid of their highest paid staff, which is oftentimes among their better staff. Um, and they, you know, try to get it done with content farms and, you know, unpaid interns and, and all that kind of stuff. And lo and behold, you end up in uh, the quality sinks like a stone. Uh, I've heard quite a few people, you know, we, you know, we can name names here, uh, Greg. Sports Illustrated laid off a ton of the talent that built that magazine and website into what it is, operating on a shoestring. I think the New York Daily News is down to a few. I think the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer is down to only a handful of reporters. Uh, big names, that you know, institutions that used to be very big names are now trying to operate on a shoestring. And guess what, folks? I, I hope, you know, if you're a 20-year-old intern and you're working your butt off right now, I hope you're uh, I hope I wish you nothing but the best. But and, you know, look, there's a reason these people are 20 or 22 years old and starting out in journalism. They're not going to give you the kind of stuff experience you can get with somebody who's been around five years, ten years, twenty years, or probably you know, Noel has probably been doing this for like what thirty years. You think? Oh, something you know? close to that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like, I am reminded of the anecdote. I never got the name, but of a embedded network news correspondent covering the Hillary Clinton campaign, who asked, "What's Whitewater?" Yes. And this is why you don't have early 20-somethings covering presidential campaigns. As much as, by the way, if you'd asked 22-year-old yeah, Jim this, he probably would have had a very different opinion. <laughs> oh, probably so. Yeah. What was, well, you knew what Watergate was back then, probably. But uh, yeah, no, no offense 
intended towards anyone named Trevor, just uh, the name that popped into my head for, <laughs> for, for young kids. We all know there's some evil Trevor in Greg's background. <laughs> Take oh, that, man. But uh, something tells me that uh, if uh, if they are letting Mark Nuller go, Mark Nuller is going to have employment again very, very soon. Uh, yeah. no, we should point out that Mark Nuller tweeted right as we started taping. Thanks to all for the many kind words. Much appreciated. For the time being, I'm still on the job, still keeping count on the president. We'll see what happens. Thanks again. So maybe they're the pushback on this has made somebody at CBS News say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't say we wanted to cut Mark Noller. We wanted to, um, we wanted to cut him some slack. That's what we know. <laughs> There's a big Never difference made. between being cut, <laughs> being cut and being notified on slack and <laughs> cutting someone some slack. Yes, exactly. Jim, as we exit here, it's uh, important to note the passing of an American legend. Uh, Sam Johnson was a congressman from Texas from 1991 to 2019. Uh, but before that, he was an officer in the United States Air Force. In fact, he was the last member of Congress to be a veteran of the Korean War, also served in the Vietnam War. Uh, he was shot down in Vietnam, spent nearly seven years in the Hanoi Hilton, uh, unbelievable torture suffered by him and so many other of the prisoners there. Uh, when he was finally released uh, in the 1970s, like so many other of those prisoners, they didn't wallow in, in, in pity. They went on and they built their lives. He built a hugely successful business, then became a state legislator, and then eventually elected to Congress in 1990, 2018, getting up there in years, decided not to run for re-election. And so then yesterday at the age of 89, uh, Sam Johnson passing away. Uh, I remember when he announced his retirement that uh, Paul Ryan could not be more effusive in his respect and admiration uh, for Sam Johnson. They became good friends. He was uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. This is just a guy who's, who spoke especially on matters related to the Iraq War and other matters of national security. He was often the last person to speak on the Republican side of the debate. And both sides of the aisle would just come to a hush to hear what he had to say based on the respect and, and the admiration that he'd earned in service and uh, in the halls of Congress as well. So uh, Sam Johnson gone at the age of 89. You know, every now and then you see a death that kind of feels like, God, they don't make them like that anymore. Greg, they don't make them like Sam Johnson anymore. And it kind of feels like this, this link to a, you know, not entirely better, but dare I say more functional era in American governance is uh, slipping away and it's going to be sorely missed for quite some time. Absolutely right. And condolences to his family and his many colleagues. Uh, Jim, we'll pause there for today and we'll reconvene tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a kind review. You can also get us on those home devices. Just say play Three Martini Lunch podcast and join us again tomorrow, which is Friday on the Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>